Welcome to Shelf Life from Bristol Libraries. This is the second of our slightly longer event episodes, where we tidy up recordings from our online events and share them with you as podcast episodes. We're alternating these with episodes made in the usual format. So in this one, Catherine talks with classicist, broadcaster, comedian and author Natalie Haynes. They start off by talking about Natalie's work generally, before focusing on her latest book, Pandora's Jar, Women in the Greek Myths. Natalie then reads an extract from the book and discusses it further before opening up to questions from our online audience about the subject. We found this talk a lot of fun, as well as fascinating, and we hope that you enjoy this episode of Shelf Life. So welcome everybody. Thanks so much for joining us this evening. It is really wonderful to have so many people here. I'm really delighted this evening to be joined by best-selling author, broadcaster and classicist, Natalie Haynes. So Natalie, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Thanks for having me. So this event is brought to you in partnership with Libraries Connected and two wonderful independent bookshops in Bristol. So both Max Minerva's Marvellous Books and Storysmith, two brilliant bookshops where you can buy Natalie's wonderful book. I have got just a little bit of an introduction for you, Natalie. Excellent. Um, so I, sometimes I actually find things out about myself in these introductions because <laughs> people have tracked them down online they go so apparently you're the only person who's ever blah blah and you go oh is that right <laughs> so yeah let's see what happens today okay, okay. all right well I hope this is all is all accurate so that's my guess. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Nessie, you are a best-selling author broadcaster and classicist you first launched your career at the Edinburgh Fringe and spent 12 years performing as a stand-up comedian before moving on to writing novels and books. So you may know Natalie from her series on Radio 4, Natalie Haynes Stands Up for the Classics. But she's also the author of five books, including The Amber Fury, The Children of Jocasta, and her most recent novel, which is A Thousand Ships, and I imagine a lot of people know that one. It's a brilliant retelling of the Trojan myths, which was shortlisted for the Women's Prize for Fiction this year. So Natalie, you're joining us this evening to talk about your latest book, Pandora's Jar. Yes. Women in the Greek Myths. Yes which is a wonderful work of non-fiction that unpicks a lot of the myths around the women of the Greek myths. Yes, I think that's true, isn't it? It takes the stories that, that we know of Greek myth or that we're often given as children and kind of interrogates them a little bit to say, well, yes, but there are quite a lot of different versions of those myths in the ancient world. And this is the version that we now sort of think of as the myth, but there's no reason for that. So let's go and look at some of the other ones where women get to do more stuff. And that might be interesting too. One of the things that I really liked about this book was that it was really engaging, but also very kind of accessible. So if you're someone like, um, so if you're someone like me who doesn't know a huge amount about Greek myths or the classics, and you've only got a little bit of knowledge, it is really readable and it's really accessible. But I kind of wanted to ask you about, so clearly, like obviously you're, you're very passionate about the classics. For you, where, where does that interest come from? Were you interested in classics? From I had good teachers. Yeah, I was really, really lucky. I am that kid who had the good teachers. And I know how rare this is and how lucky that makes me because I get messages from people who had the much more common opposite experience mm -hmm. all the time. People who say, I wish you taught me Latin at school. Sometimes these are people in their 80s and you go, I'm not sure how old you think I am, but I am not old enough to have taught you, person in their 80s, Latin at school. But anyway, but I was crazy lucky. I had a brilliant Latin teacher um, from the age of 11 
I had brilliant Greek teachers from the age of 14. My school inexplicably let me do triple classics A-levels, which I'm pretty sure you wouldn't be allowed to do now because it was, now it would, I think, be seen as being too, specialising too much too young, probably rightly. But I, I got to do Latin, Greek and ancient history. It's really rare to find a school which allows you to, to study those things. So yeah, classics just had me at hello. I, I loved Latin straight away because when you start Latin, I was really, I wasn't a very kind of bookish child. I'm sorry, everyone, by the way, that I've still got wet hair. I thought it would dry in the time before this and it hasn't. And I wish I could say this doesn't happen quite often, but there's no point in my going, oh yeah, this has never happened before because there'll be countless photographs and video of me online having turned up to a thing with wet hair. I'm sorry about it. Um, I, think, I think it's fair enough. I I think it's a Friday night and it's during exactly if it weren't during lockdown I'd be perfectly groomed as always coughs <laughs> so yeah no I was just crazy crazy lucky I had I had such a, a kind of passion for Latin because when you first meet it it's like maths you know and I loved maths as a kid I, I wasn't particularly I read a lot of books as a child but I always saw myself as being sort of very logical very into things like that and Latin is you know when you first start it it's like a substitution code you know it's like how do you find a word that that this word means, and then build the sentence. Latin's a super logical language. And then you start Greek and you go, oh, no. (laughs) Oh, oh, here we go. You know, Greek has 24 words for the. So everything gets a little bit more complicated when you get to there. And then I just loved the study of these languages, which starts, as I say, in quite a scientific way, but then becomes this incredibly kind of, you know, creative, um, interpretative thing. It just had me at every stage. It's like a I guess, you know, the Caecilius Estin Horto, the Cambridge Latin course, um, that was my gateway drug. Um, mm-hmm. But I, yeah, I've never been able to give it up. I, I, didn't do, I didn't do much classics for about 10 years when I was doing stand-up. Um, I didn't do any material about classics. It, it wouldn't have been situationally successful, I think it's fair to say. It's had me since I was 11 years old. And is that something that you feel really strongly about in terms of the, the classics? Because, I mean, it's not something that I had the opportunity to study at school. So, you know, right. you end up doing sort of like the French and Spanish and the more kind of typical mm. languages. And sometimes people can have this idea that the classics is something that's very, yeah, not easy or not reachable or not... Yeah, fun. difficult or elite. Yeah, absolutely. Elite, yes. It drives me crazy. It just drives me crazy because classics is all our history. It belongs to all of us indefensible in my view that the teaching of classics is so withheld from the vast majority of people. I understand completely that the national curriculum is groaning at the seams and that teachers are already trying incredibly hard to get as much as they can into you know the school day already and it's virtually impossible to see where anything else could go and I get that and yet still I feel like children should at least have the chance to learn some sort of classics if they would like to. I really do believe it it belongs to us all at the moment. The majority, particularly the majority of classics, language teaching, Latin and Greek, happens in private schools. That is 7% of students. I think it's unacceptable to withhold our collective history and culture from 93% of students. It's not okay. There's a big increase in the teaching of classical civilization, so classics in translations, and that's fantastic. And lots of that is, is happening in state schools. But if we want to have more classicists, we need students obviously to be prepared to go to university and study it. Asking them to do that for a jump into the unknown, for a subject they couldn't study at school, is pretty optimistic in my view. So I do feel really strongly that it feels like a huge responsibility to me to instead find a way of presenting classics to people as though it's theirs, because it is, you know? So with the radio series, I know that we get, um, I mean, Radio 4 has such huge listenership and that's, you know, those people didn't all get to do classics at school. I always thought, through making the radio series we've done six series of it now so 24 episodes but it's always felt like a a 
big deal to me that they should be a sort of piece of a complete piece of work that I don't repeat myself you know even five years later when we came to do Aristotle and Adam Rutherford Dr Rutherford uh, to give him his title was saying oh there's this great bit about spontaneous you know it, and I was like no we can't do that because I mentioned it in Virgil back in series one um, and my producer was like that is actually okay Natalie it's you know six years ago that's fine and and I was always really convinced that 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 was something I didn't want to do I wanted it to feel essentially like one long episode over you know however many years it goes on for and that always seemed like way more work and effort than it really required and certainly more than I was ever paid to do until this year when they became a podcast just before lockdown happened and they've been downloaded nearly a million times this year and I think people listen to them kind of binge listen to them through lockdown Mm -hmm. precisely because I think that they don't they don't expect you to know stuff already but also I expect you to you know, have listened to earlier episodes, I will call back to it. I'll say, oh, back in series three. So if you come in at series five, you can go, oh, is there something in series three I might be interested in? I've always wanted it to feel like a, a big kind of matrix that you're invited into. It's like, come over here, there's this cool thing. And, and when you find this bit, there's this cool thing over here. If you're as lucky as I was and am, you have an obligation to share it with other people. So where can people find those episodes to listen to? Is it available? BBC Sounds. BBC Sounds. Absolutely free on BBC Sounds. I mean, I say free. Of course, those of you who have a TV licence have already paid for my programme. So thank you very much for your generous contribution to the BBC. But it was an absolute joy and a pleasure and sometimes an enormous stress, particularly on the night of recording, to record them. But it was a delight. And so it took a little bit of time to kind of badger people. My producer had to work really hard to persuade them that they should all be up and available but they are so please help yourself you're not dependent on the iPlayer the whole 24 episodes are available to you all the time so go enjoy okay wonderful don't go right now because I'm talking (laughs) but in general after this event yes yeah after this yeah that is really wonderful to know So to talk about the book a little bit, can you tell us just a little bit about Pandora's Jar? It's basically a set of 10 chapters about 10 women in Greek myth, which I I kind of felt each of those women had, there was a reason to to retell her story, either because in the case of, for example, Pandora, she has fallen foul of a mistranslation, which makes her seem like a villain when she is not, or because she has been turned into a monster, literally and metaphorically, when actually she was a mortal woman to something horrific happened, Medusa. Or sometimes she is an actual terrible person who does terrible things. And I thought, well, how can we explain the behavior of the worst wife in Greek myth, Clytemnestra, who kills her husband with an axe? Sometimes it's a sword. The worst mother, Medea, who kills her children uh, with a sword, uh, and indeed her love rival with poison. And then at the same time, I was thinking, well, how can we look at, how can I talk about some of the women who aren't bad, but who have nonetheless been forgotten. The Amazons, you know, who were hugely popular in the ancient world, but whose story has just sort of slid away from us. You know, we do read Homer, but we don't read Quintus Manaeus. We do read about Achilles and Patroclus, but we don't read about Penthesilea fighting Achilles in, in Quintus Manaeus' Fall of Troy. And I thought, well, let's let's tell that story and also look at why that story might have been lost. And then uh, at the very end of the book, it's Penelope, who is... Um, she suffers from a different fate, which is to be the good wife, the very best of wives. And I thought, well, that that in itself is a constraint, isn't it? This is a construct entirely created by 
men who don't really know her. You know, by Agamemnon says she's a fantastic wife, you know, way better than mine. And you go, well, that right there shows you how misogyny works. He's not praising Penelope, really. He just wants a, another stick he can use to beat his... I mean, he is, to be fair, in the underworld because his wife has killed him at this point. So you can see why he might be grumpy. You know, he has at most met Penelope twice and most recently, 20 years ago. He has no idea if she's a good wife or not. He doesn't know who she is as a person. I thought, well all right, let's have some fun and go and explore her. So it's about 10 women in Greek myth, some good, some bad, um, and some, you know, misguided and some entirely, entirely guided by, you know, malevolence. And I thought, well, what happens if we, if we look at their stories in you? That's so interesting, because I, I found when I was reading it that um, some of the stories are by characters, are about characters that you feel like you know pretty well or you think that you know pretty well. Right. So it was really... Like Helen, you know. Yeah, yeah, they're named. I mean, Helen of Troy is proper famous and yet you know her story is incredibly complicated and is full of really strange difficult areas that we never talk about so the most famous person in the Trojan War in the UK definitely it's not true mm. if you ask this question in Cyprus where the answer is Achilles is Helen she's the only one we put of Troy next to. So yeah so it's that thing of, of learning all of these different kinds of sides to um, or different versions of the stories and sides to characters that that already felt really familiar. And then also learning about lots of new characters that, yes, like, as you say, somehow, for whatever reason, their stories aren't retold as much and have been sort of forgotten or left to one side. So actually, just starting with the title, because I, I was going to ask you to share a reading in just a minute. If you wouldn't mind just explaining the title and why... I do not mind Pandora's explaining the title. And not Pandora's because box. Because Pandora doesn't have a box. She doesn't have a box until about 500 years ago. She never has one in the ancient world. If you look at ancient visual representations of Pandora, she is never shown with any kind of receptacle at all. Um, she is always shown, instead, in the act of being created. Pandora is sculpted from earth, from clay, by the god Hephaestus, the you know master craftsman and blacksmith god Hephaestus. And she is the first woman. You and I are descended from Pandora. Men are descended from Erichthonius. We are literally, in the Greek origin story, we're different races, men and women, descended from different chthonic people, earth-made people. And so Pandora is the first woman. But in the first version of her story that we have... Hesiod's, well, almost certainly it comes before the works and days, and Hesiod's Theogony, he mentions her creation, but he doesn't mention anything about a jar. In the longer version, in the works and days, there is a jar when she's um, handed over to a man named Epimetheus to be his, his wife. He's the brother of Prometheus, who steals fire from the gods and gets his uh, liver pecked out every day in the underworld. When she arrives at Epimetheus's house, then she has a jar but we're never told that it's hers, that she you know, has got it from somewhere, that she's delivered to Epimetheus by the messenger god Hermes. It seems much more plausible that the jar has come from Zeus and that Hermes has transported them both together. And so there are lots of different versions of what's in the jar in the ancient world. We tend to think of it, Hesiod tells us that it's full of bad things, but Theognis in his elegies tells us that it's full of good things. In some versions of her story, Pandora opens it. In other versions, Aesop's fable, for example, one of them, Epimetheus opens it, her husband does it. In every version of the story, whatever's in the jar, good things or bad, go out into the world, except for one thing, hope, elpis, or expectation, more accurately to translate it, that stays in the jar. And even that is a, is a philosophically contentious issue, because is it a good thing that Pandora has kept hope for us in the jar so hope is safe? Or is it bad if all the bad things or good things are out in the world already amongst us? Don't we want hope to be amongst them mm. too so that we've got her? You know, it's genuinely really difficult to work out how positive or negative this is supposed to be. And it's made worse by translation. So Hesiod calls Pandora 
kalon kakon. Now, these two words are opposites, and they mean um, kalon, kalos, uh, means good, beautiful, fine, pretty, noble, all positive things. And kakon is its opposite, bad, ugly, evil, you know, uh, shoddy, something like that. And routinely what happens when translators take that two-word phrase is that rather than translating them as morally identical, which would be beautiful, ugly, like the French word, um, uh, French phrase, jolilette, where you can be beautiful and ugly at the same time, people translate it as, as beautiful because she's pretty, but then bad because she's evil. You know, but that's not in the Greek. This is what's going to be on my tombstone, incidentally. I think you'll find that's not in the Greek. Um, <laughs> But she's, there's no reason why she has to be a beautiful evil. She could equally well be an ugly good. She could be a beautiful ugly. She could be a good bad. The words mean exactly the same thing. It's just we always see them translated in this specific way. So she suffers with that translation. And then Erasmus, bless his heart, comes along. And he takes the story that's in Hesiod. And he takes the word for jar in Greek, pithos, and translates it to the Latin word pixis, which means box. And within about 30 years, you can see artwork of Pandora changes. So instead of being, you know, a, almost invariably, it's so interesting the way visual artists um, interpret her story, because the, pretty well the only thing Hesiod tells us about her in terms of description is that she's got a lovely dress that she likes, and then every single artwork, naked, 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 <laughs> naked. Yeah. Guys, did you not read the bit about the dress because she likes it? I'm just saying. But uh, th what you get, of course, is very quickly, instead of being shown with a jar, or as I say in the ancient world, she's never shown with a receptacle at all, always shown in the act of being created, she gets shown with a box and then really quickly it becomes like a strong box with straps on it and this malevolent woman is opening it. And it's because, of course, these artists are creating art in a world where Pandora has been mapped onto the story of Eve, you know, the villainous woman who's responsible for the downfall of everybody. And you go, well, I mean, I, I, mean, I have a problem with the Eve narrative, don't get me wrong, but I have even more of a problem with the way that you've taken Pandora and kind of distorted her to make it, for the ancients, Pandora is an agent of change. Right, she is the thing that changes. Two things happen. Prometheus steals fire from the gods and gives it to mortals, and Zeus sends Pandora as a sort of payback for that. So everything changes. We get, I mean, in evolutionary terms, that is what happens, right? When fire is discovered, mankind, humankind makes an enormous leap forwards, right? That it does change everything. And he's sealed, of course, he's going to be grumpy about it because he's incredibly grumpy. He hates brothers, he hates women. So any story where he can have a hapless woman and a hapless brother, and the story of Pandora and uh, Epimetheus is just such one. He's, you know, delighted being able to complain. But he, he says that, you know, Pandora brings an end to the carefree life of men. And you find yourself reading it going, well, how, how much fun was the, was the carefree life if you couldn't cook anything? You know, what am I going to eat in the carefree life? Am I just gnawing on the leg of a bison or something? What even is that? So, you know, it doesn't sound that great. And carefree, yeah, well, I guess that's one way of describing it. Boring might be another, Hesiod. So, yeah, and Erasmus, I should say, to finish up your question, has form for mistranslating things, not necessarily because of, you know, intentional misogyny, um, but sometimes he just makes a mistake, which I think is what happens with the pithos-pixis issue. Um, I don't think he does it on purpose. I don't think there's malice in his, in his heart. I think it just goes that way sometimes. And for example, when we, in English, we might say, this person likes to call a spade a spade. And that comes from Erasmus, who translates the word scaphair in Greek to mean spade, except the word scaphair doesn't mean spade. It means a hollowed out vessel like a canoe. So what we should say is that person likes to call a canoe a canoe. But we don't, because Erasmus happened. So Pandora doesn't have a box, she's got a jar, and you don't call a spade a spade, you call it a canoe. 
You call a canoe a canoe. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, isn't language brilliant? Isn't it great? Yeah. (laughs) I was wondering if we could ask you now, um, would you mind sharing a reading with us from the book? I would not. I'm going to read you the very introduction. So from even before Pandora, not least because if I read you the beginning of Pandora, I will just tell you what I've already just told you. So. When Harry Hamlin stood behind a pillar in the darkness of Medusa's lair in the Ray Harryhausen film, Clash of the Titans, flames flickering off his shield, his face glistening with sweat, my brother and I were transfixed. Perseus holds the shield in front of his eyes to protect himself from Medusa's stony gaze. He watches the reflection of a slithering monster outlined in front of the fire behind him. This Medusa has a lashing snakish tail as well as the traditional snakes for hair. She's armed with a bow and arrows and can knock one of Perseus's comrades off his feet with a single hit. As the man sprawls on the ground, she glides forward into the light. Suddenly, her eyes flash bright green. He's turned to stone where he lies. Medusa fires another arrow, this time taking Perseus's shield out of his hands. Her rattlesnake tail quivers in anticipation of the kill. Perseus tries to catch her reflection in the glinting blade of his sword as she knocks a third arrow. Medusa inches closer as Perseus waits, turning his sword in his hand. The sweat has formed beads across his upper lip. At the crucial moment, he swings his arm and decapitates her. Her body writhes before thick red blood seeps out from her neck. When it reaches his shield, there's a hissing sound as it corrodes the metal. This film, along with Jason and the Argonauts, was a staple of my childhood viewing. It was a rare school holiday when one of them wasn't on TV. It didn't occur to me there was anything unusual about the depiction of Medusa because she wasn't a character, she was just a monster. Who feels sorry for a creature who has snakes for hair and turns innocent men to stone? I would go on to study Greek at school because of these films and probably also because of the children's versions of Greek myths I'd read, a puffin edition, I think, by Roger Lancelin Green. My brother tells me we had a Norse one too. It would be years before I came across any other version of Medusa's story, anything that told me how she became a monster or why. During my degree, I kept coming across details in the work of ancient authors, which were quite different from the versions I knew, from simplified stories I'd read and watched. Medusa wasn't always a monster. Helen of Troy wasn't always an adulterer. Pandora wasn't ever a villain. Even characters that were outright villainous, Medea, Clytemnestra, Phaedra, were often far more nuanced than they first appeared. In my final year at college, I wrote my dissertation on women who kill children in Greek tragedy. I spent the last few years writing novels which tell stories from Greek myth that have largely been forgotten. Female characters were often central figures in ancient versions of these stories. The playwright Euripides wrote eight tragedies about the Trojan War which survived to us today. One of them, Orestes, has a male title character. The other seven have women as their titles. Andromache, Electra, Hecabe, Helen... Iphigenia and Aulus, Iphigenia among the Taurians, and the Trojan women. When I began hunting out the stories I wanted to tell, I felt exactly like Perseus in the Harryhausen movie, squinting at reflections in the half-light. These women were hiding in plain sight in the pages of Ovid and Euripides. They were painted on vases which are held in museums all over the world. They were in fragments of lost poems and broken statues, but they were there. That's wonderful. Thank you. Thanks. It's like Jackanory, isn't it? You still go to bed now. (laughs) It's also, yeah, no, but it is. um, Because I also know that you um, uh, narrated the audiobooks for, I am right in saying this, for A Thousand Ships. 
Yes. Yes, yes. Yes, I did. I did the, the audiobook for Pandora and for A Thousand Ships. I said no to doing Jocasta because Jocasta has two voices. One of them's the third person, which I knew I could do fine. But the first person is like 15 and I'm just too old. I am just too old to sound like a 15-year-old girl. Whereas Ships has so many voices. I, oh, no one can do all of those. That's fine. I can, I can do that badly the same as everyone else. Don't worry. <laughs> oh, well, I really enjoyed it. I, yeah, oh, good. Listening to it. I did that thing actually where you read the book and you listen to the audiobook at the same time. So it sort of gives you two slightly different. I don't know if anyone else does that actually. Sort of different. Oh, that's really interesting. What happens when you do that? I think you read in slightly different ways. Yeah, I bet. It, it worked for me with that one because you can keep a track of what's going on. I sometimes find yeah, yeah. books like I, I end up tuning out a little bit and you lose the plot and you're not quite sure. Also worth saying that we have them. We have A Thousand Ships available as an ebook and as an audiobook through the Bristol Libraries apps. So if you do want to read them or listen to them, you can do that with your Bristol Libraries card online. Plug for Bristol Libraries there. Go Bristol Libraries, pom-poms. <laughs> um, right, but back to the book. So Pandora's Jar, it, it focuses on 10 women that you've said, or nine women and the Amazons. Um, yes. So how did you go about choosing which stories and characters to include in this book? It was kind of mixture. You know, I had to do Pandora because she was the title, obviously. I decided quite quickly that I would do some, but I couldn't do all, obviously, of the Trojan War ones. So I had to do Helen because it would be mad not to, because she probably is the most famous woman from Greek myth, I think. Some were kind of, you know, I couldn't resist them, like Penelope. I was always going to do Medea. I, you know, I wrote my dissertation on Medea, but then I wrote my dissertation on Hecabe as well, and I couldn't couldn't really justify having another Trojan War woman in the book. So she had to wait for another one, I guess. But some of them I was still really deciding right down to the wire with Phaedra in particular. It could equally well have been Ariadne and it, it would have been a different chapter, but it would have held the weight. I feel kind of bad that Deonira isn't in it because it means there's nobody from the Hercules slash Heracles um, myth cycle. Um, so I do feel a bit guilty that, that Deonira didn't get a go. But I could have done 10 other women and it would have been you know, exactly as much fun for me. And by the time I was writing the last half of the book, which was done at an enormous pace, then there was just no time. You know, I was like, well, I don't have time to sit here going, oh, I wonder if X or Y, you know, when people go, oh, do you ever get writer's block? Nope, <laughs> I've got a deadline, it's all fine. So yeah, there just, there literally wasn't time. And I feel okay uh, with the choices that I made. I feel a little sad for some of the ones that I lost, but it, it had to be about this length. I couldn't have done extra chapters. It would have been too long. So, you know, it just leaves me the option of doing volume two, I guess. And so actually I wanted to ask you, kind of on the subject of how do you find writing fiction and nonfiction? Do you find them totally different things to approach or do you find it easier to write something that's nonfiction and that's more kind yes. of... Yeah, I do. you do. I do. I find, well, the, intellectually, it's identical because I do the exact same kind of research. There's a bit more, I suppose there's a slight edge with writing nonfiction because you could make a mistake, you know, with a novel, basically. Mm -hmm. It's a novel. If somebody doesn't like the way you interpret a character, that's on them. Read another book. With nonfiction, you know, you don't want to accidentally attribute a, you know, quote to the wrong author or, you know, misname a play or whatever. And I'm incredibly cavalier about all kinds of things, which make, you know, the, my poor copy editors have to breathe into a paper bag. And I think classicists do this a lot. I'll call a play by a title that it doesn't have all the time. I have to make a huge effort to call Medea Medea and not the Medea. And, you know, the Trojan women is fine because that's in the Greek title, but it's, you know, not the Hippolytus. And classicists do this all the time, just randomly put an article in front of them. And I have to really, and they, every time they're like, does it have that or not? You go, no, yes, there's absolutely no consistency. But the, the real difference between them is that my novels are all quite sad. They're quite emotionally draining. And Ships has quite a lot of jokes in it, I think. But it's, it was still quite a harrowing book to, 
to write. And so I do the same research, but I don't have to get inside the characters. I can show you them from the outside. And that is after the experience of writing Amber and then Jocasta and then Ships on the Hoof, I, I just couldn't do it again. I needed to take a, an emotional break. Writing Pandora was just lovely. It's like, look at all this cool stuff. Look at all this cool stuff. Here's this cool stuff is basically the motivating, you know, Thing that's happening for me the whole time I'm writing it whereas with ships it's like let me just immerse myself in this awful tragedy I'll be right back um so yeah it's a lot it's a lot less harrowing for me writing non-fiction it's interesting if if your idea of taking a break from writing novels is writing another book like yes that. yeah <laughs> I haven't fully got this right I'm prepared to accept that um, but yeah I can understand the logic and sort of alternating between the really emotional the emotionally intense experience of writing a novel and then being able to switch into, into writing nonfiction. Would you consider writing a volume two of Pandora's Jar? So yeah, the next two books are novels, Medusa and then Medea, but I would, would maybe do Pandora's Jar two after that. Goddesses, I think, maybe, instead of mortal women for a change. I know that Pandora is probably sort of quasi-technically a goddess. Uh, Medusa obviously has family of gods, but she is technically mortal. Maybe I'll do goddesses next time. Do you have a favourite character amongst these women? Oh, it's really hard. I'm incredibly fickle and everything I'm writing at the time, I love more than the last thing with every chapter and in ways which you would think were really not going to happen. So when I wrote the Pandora chapter, I thought, oh, it's been really fun because I didn't know that much about Pandora. You know, I read Hesiod, but there've been I found loads of artworks and things and it was the first time I'd really written about visual arts and that was lovely. I was like, oh, that was great. I had a lovely time. Thanks, Pandora. It was really nice. Who's up next? Oh, Jocasta, lovely. And then by the end of her chapter, I was like, God, somebody should totally write about her. I was like, you've literally done this. What is wrong with you? And that happened every single time. You know, I got to the end of the Amazons chapter. It's like, why does someone write a novel about Penthesilea? It's like, you've literally given her a chapter in ships. What is going on? But yeah, I'm always just so besotted with whoever I'm writing about at any given moment. It does make it really... I mean, I suppose, objectively, I should probably say it's Medea because I wrote my dissertation on her. You know, I've been reading that play. I must have seen 30 productions of it. I've been reading it since I was 17, maybe. And I still found new things in it this time through to write about it in Pandora. I got to this particular scene. I was like, how have I never noticed that before? I've read it a million times. But yeah, I mean, I suppose I have to say Medusa, don't I? Because she's the next book. So she has to be the one I love most. I'm still too early in this book to have got to the point. I'm still at the point where I'm like, maybe she doesn't like me. Maybe if I offer her a drink, um, I'm still there. But I'm gradually going to win her round, I feel sure. Okay. But that's really great to know. So the plan is Medusa and then Medea. So we've got those two. Yes. Yes, you do. Brilliant. If it's all right, I think we'll move on to some questions from the audience. So I've got a good question here from Martin, who is asking, who would you most like to meet from classical history and why? Oh, from history, not from myth. That's a good one. I mean, probably Euripides, I think, because he wrote such extraordinary female characters and he gets such a, you know, kind of hero's welcome in Pandora. You know, he's easily my favourite. You can tell he's my favourite. I've got absolutely no poker face. So, yeah, I think probably Euripides. I, I, there are lots and lots of right where you kind of go, oh, you know, I love Ovid. I've been working with Ovid all this year. It's been joyous. But his, you know, sexual politics are appalling. And, you know, I mean, maybe Euripides as well as well. But he keeps that quiet. So fair enough. So, yeah, I think probably Euripides. Because then I could ask the question which Edith Hall has proposed. Professor Edith Hall, I should give her her title, has suggested that he must have had an incredibly 
close working relationship with an actor who was particularly good at playing women because obviously all roles in Greek tragedy were played by men because they wear masks. And yet he wrote one after another incredible role for, for women. And so she's suggested that he must have had this particularly close ongoing working relationship with an actor. And it would be lovely to, to know who that was and, and how they worked together and how they wrote. Yeah, I, I'm such a writer at heart. I really want to know how other writers write. Well, brilliant. That's a really good answer to a really good question. So thank you for sending that through. Uh, we've had a, another question here. This one from Owena. She would like to know, so regarding research, have you um, discovered any facts that have really surprised you or changed your opinions? Yeah, I have. When I was doing the chapter, I mean, in every chapter, probably, um, I found things that I didn't know. There's an incredible moment in uh, at the very end of the Helen chapter. There are two volumes of a collection called The Lost Plays of Greek Tragedy by a very brilliant man called Matthew Wright. There's this play called The Demand for Helen's Return, and there are only two fragments from it that survive. And I just wouldn't have been able to find them if this book hadn't been published so close to the writing of Pandora. And in these two fragments, in one, Helen is, you know, re- full of self-loathing, full of recrimination for her and Paris's affair. She's talking about suicide. She mentions drinking poison. Bull's blood is what she's thinking of drinking. And we see that sort of version of Helen in the Iliad where she's full of remorse and, and so on, although there's a very, very different version of her in the Odyssey. But then there's this absolutely astonishing moment where she's shown, and this is quite harrowing, so feel free to consider yourself trigger-warned. She's, she's shown to be um, disfiguring her face, self-harming, with writing implements pencils basically and it's just like sorry the most beautiful woman in the world is disfiguring the face that you know men literally write poetry about using the exact implements they have used to make her famous was this written 15 minutes ago what on earth is going it's two and a half thousand years old how can that be true and equally there's an incredible moment in the Phaedra chapter I think where you know, the story of Phaedra is obviously a very difficult one to, to discuss because she makes a false accusation of rape. And it's a very painful and, um, and traumatic play. Um, and uh, it's a very difficult story to write about. But Plutarch extraordinarily says, you know, that this story of Phaedra being sort of bad is the one that people know because it's the one that gets performed on stage. She's talking about the Euripides play Hippolytus, which obviously will be reworked later by, for example, Racine as Phaedra. And, uh, and he says, but there are lots of really terrible stories about Theseus's marriages that have terrible beginnings and really bad endings, but those haven't been shown on the stage. And, you know, and he goes on to describe, you know, Theseus is a serial murderer and rapist of women. He just is. And Plutarch, you know, just ice cold, lays these things down one after another. And it's not just that he notices this, it's that he notices that we don't talk about those stories. We talk about the story where the woman does a bad thing. He doesn't draw that out. He doesn't make any kind of gendered issue of it, but he's aware of it. And there it is right there. Do you find sometimes that it's, it can feel a little, it's a bit of a pessimistic thing, but can, it can feel a little depressing to think about maybe how little has changed in some senses in 2000 years in terms of misogyny, really? I think we have quite different misogyny from that. Yes. <laughs> so, so at least there's that. Um, yeah, I think um, our misogyny is, is a different it is different, obviously, in lots of ways in terms of things like politics or social policy. So, yeah, of course, women have absolutely no political power whatsoever. They don't have a vote. They don't have anything. Fifth century Athens, had I lived, BC Athens, had I lived then, I would have had an entirely cloistered existence. The only men I would probably ever have met would be my brother, my father and my husband. So, yeah, it's a different category of misogyny. The depressing thing is that we haven't got through misogyny yet. You know, the distance that we've come 
um, I, it took a really, really long time. You know, so if Aristophanes is suggesting, you know, what happens if women want political power, which he does in the plays Lysistrata and the Thesmophoria Zuzai um, in the fifth century BC, it is disappointing that it then took another, you know, twenty three hundred years for women to get a vote. That's the thing that I try to remember is that it is only, you know, a hundred and. 100 years and change. I mean, obviously a bit longer in New Zealand and places, Australia. But women haven't had a vote for very long in terms of, as in classicist terms, mm -hmm, yeah. then uh, we're, we're making huge strides in, in relatively short time. It doesn't feel that way when you live through it. And, you know, equal pay has been illegal, uh, you know, it's been a legal requirement for my entire life. And yet somehow people still try and pay me less than they pay men. That's getting a little tiresome, I'm not going to lie. But you know, we still make progress. And the, the nice thing about having made it is that when we look back on it, see how far we've come, it makes us realise that even though we've got a long way to go, we can do it. So in a sense, it is about putting it into context, really. Exactly. Yeah. So this this actually leads on to another question. That um, So this one from Oscar. So, I mean, it, it's, it's roughly what you were just talking about, but um, he's asking, how do you, the female Greek characters represent the Greek attitude towards women in the ancient world? Yeah, I mean, it's that's a really difficult question to answer because, of course, they're not at all representative. For a start, we've only got a tiny, tiny percentage of the literature from the ancient world. Somewhere between 97 and 99% of ancient literature doesn't survive to us today. Just to, to give you an idea of how representative what we have is, okay. it, it's really between 1% and 3%. And then there's the issue of, of how those pieces survive to us. It's sometimes because of just sheer good luck. And sometimes it's because ancient scholars thought that they, these were the best things. But would we agree with them? Were they right? We can't possibly say. We haven't got all the other material to compare it to. And then we have to look at the fact that the texts that we have were written, you know, for the, for the largest part by a tiny elite of men within the, the Athenian world in the fifth century. I mean, obviously, you know, the ancient Greek world is about 2,000 years old, and, but the, the focal bit of writing is, you know, fifth and fourth century, and then there's less Greek writing after that, because obviously the Romans become more powerful, and so there are still people writing in Greek. The, the Romans learn Greek as a sort of sign of, of being very cultured, but at the same time, there's a, obviously there's a rise of writing in, in Latin instead. And so, you know, if we look at just plays, then we'd be looking at mainly the 5th century. And if we use comedy as well, then extending into the 4th century BCE. And then we'd have these incredible roles for women, which have absolutely no relation to the lives of the women who, who could have seen these plays, if they were even allowed at the theatre, which we don't even know. And that is the level of difficulty that you're working at, because unfortunately, Greek grammar makes it the case that we never know if women are in a space, if men are in there as well. Because if you want to say the Athenian men in Greek, you use the masculine ending, you'd say hoi athenaioi, the men, the Athenian men. If you want to say the Athenian men and women are in the space, the presence of even one man with like a thousand women would mean it would take the masculine ending, hoi athenaio. So we'd have no idea what the gender makeup of a group of people was. If you wanted to say there were a group of Athenian women doing something, you'd say hi athenaioi. But when I say you would say, I'm using that subjunctive advisedly because there is no example in surviving literature of those words ever being used. There is never a group of women who are described in a historical document in that way. So it's incredibly difficult to know anything about women in the ancient world. It's, there's so much of it is really educated guesswork by really brilliant scholars. But, you know, the, the best illustration, I guess, is that incredible opening monologue in Euripides' Medea, where she talks about how awful it is being a woman. And the conditions that she's describing, she talks about having to buy a husband, she means with a dowry, and uh, not knowing what kind of man he'll be, and blah, blah, blah. That, that's not her life. 
You know, she didn't buy Jason. She eloped with him. Her dowry was the golden fleece. You know, she nicked it off her dad, having killed an unsleeping snake. Yes, she does do that, according to Apollonius of Rhodes. Uh, Jason is not anywhere near as heroic. She does all the hard yard. But, you know, that's not her life. And it, it seems very clear, or at least reasonably clear, that the life she's describing is that of, of the wives of the men who are watching this play. You know, this this takes an enormous amount of unpicking. So it's really, really hard to say. It's worth pointing out that when, when we get vase paintings of women doing terrible things, but the images of women doing violent things to men tend to be in vases from Magna Graecia, so southern Italy, uh, which are a bit later. So I, I think there's a really valid question uh, to ask about why the men of southern Italy were so very robust in the face of scary women when the men of Athens seem to have been very much less so. <laughs> but I don't have an answer for why that might be. Oh, that's so interesting. And it's so interesting to hear that it's that it's sometimes the language itself that is kind of masking an eclipse. Right. If, if you're not, so just know, right. know who is being referred to and, and what gender. It is so hard. The quantity of Sappho that we've known about increased by 50% during my lifetime. <laughs> but the vast, vast majority of it is lost. So yeah, so a lot of, yeah, a lot of unknowns. A really good question. So thank you for sending that through. I'm um, actually so from reading Pandora's Jar, just because of the way that you write about him as a writer. So Euripides really comes across as, as being a writer that writes very strong, really interesting, very complex female characters. Right. So yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I'm just getting the impression that he's like a, one of your favourites, I think. He is one of my favourites. But in the ancient world, mm-hmm. he was, you know, the question is, did he hate women? You know, and the, there's a play, an Aristophanes play, where the women, called the poet and the women, uh, all get really angry with him because he keeps writing plays where they do terrible things. And so the question, is Euripides a feminist or a misogynist? Because he shows women in great roles, but on the other hand, they're always being evil, is one that's been alive for, since he was alive. But obviously, if you get to choose from women doing terrible things or women just not existing, then women do terrible things, please, all day long. <laughs> Definitely more interesting. Absolutely. Um, so another question. Um, good question here from Mary. who's saying, who would you recommend reading to throw light on the current lack of honesty and truth in today's climate? An ancient author to tell us about today. I mean, it's it's tempting, but I guess I would probably go with Thucydides. Now, I'm not going to lie to you, Thucydides is not a laugh a minute, but the speeches that he um, writes, attributes to various statesmen in 5th century Athens are absolutely incredible, although they are very difficult in Greek. I think he's the only person in Ancient Guide who I didn't translate. I think I used the Penguin translation and credited uh, the translator because they were just so difficult. It would have added like two months to the to the writing time. But the Melian dialogue, for example, or the Mytilene debate, where you can see how a voting, a set of voters, but how their views can be swayed from one extreme to another by somebody speaking in a particularly charged way. I think they are a, a salutary text for any time. Brilliant, thank you. You're welcome. It sounds like a really solid answer to that question there. Yeah. So I've got another question here, which is more about writing and the process of writing. So it's come from Kevin and he's asking, he recalls that you said that one chapter made you cry in A Thousand Ships, even though you obviously, sorry, this question's going back to A Thousand Ships. That's all right. <laughs> just to jump around a little bit. It's fine. <laughs> okay, so going back to A Thousand Ships, um, just because actually I wanted to um, mention that one of our book groups, um, one of our Bristol Libraries book groups has just read A Thousand Ships as their book this month, last month, um, and they are joining us this evening. So hello to them. Hello, book group. Thanks for reading. 
So this question, sorry, is about a thousand chips. Um, it's from Kevin. He's asking. He recalls that one chapter um, made you cry, mm. or apparently he's he's read or, or heard somewhere that one chapter made you cry in a thousand in the writing of a thousand chips, even though you obviously knew what was coming. Yeah, um, I'm a massive crybaby though. So he's asking, what else surprised you in the writing itself rather than the research? Oh, I guess it always, I mean, if you're doing it right, I guess it should always surprise you, shouldn't it? Because otherwise, you know, it would be sort of colouring in rather than creating. Do you know what I mean? So I tend to know pretty pretty well where my books are going at any given time. But at every with every new chapter in Ships, because it changes voice so often, and there were some recurring voices, Penelope, the Trojan Women, and, and so those ones, you know, by the third or fourth go, it's like, oh, yeah, no, I know what these bits sound like. But there are so many standalone chapters, one after another, after another, after another. And each time I was like, oh, I just don't, how do I write you? How, are you, who, how do you work? Hi, hello, come on in. And, you know, it's like, will you be in the third person? Are you going to be in the first person? Is it going to be like a funny chapter? Is it going to be really serious? Is it going to be really heartbreaking? And there were moments where I felt like the the story was kind of quite sweet and quite calm. But other people have found, like Oinoni, who I really loved writing. I thought it was just a really lovely kind of set piece. But other people have felt like it was a real call to arms, kind of defending single mums. And it's like, well, definitely. But I didn't. I didn't particularly feel that way as I was writing it. I, I know that it, I can see that it's in there, but I didn't notice that I was kind of putting those feelings in, I guess. And that does sometimes happen. You know, sometimes the way you feel is on the page, but it's not necessarily, sometimes it does just go straight through from, you know, whichever bit of your brain it's in, out through your fingers onto the keyboard. And, and you don't, the conscious bit of you doesn't notice it until way, way later. So I know, I am aware that we are um, running out of time, actually. Sorry, I'm answering too slowly. No, 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 no. Let's all... quick fire them. Come on. <laughs> so that's just a couple more, I think. Look, I'm um, getting, I'm here. I'm ready to quick fire. Come on. Um, okay. All right. Well, actually, this sounds like quite a big one, but um, we'll give it a go. <laughs> I'm done at the first hurdle. <laughs> right. Let's Let's try it. Um, so this one's from Heather. Um, she's saying that one of her lectures, lecturers at university was adamant that Helen was not the true cause of the Trojan War. Couldn't agree more. Rather than commerce a trade, she said, "Yes." Yeah, so she's asking, "Do you agree? Is Helen just yes. a story?" Um, yes, I think Helen is entirely not responsible for the Trojan War. I love the speech that she gives in Euripides Trojan Women, um, talking about this in the Big Agone with Hecabe, um, and the version of Helen that's in A Thousand Ships is absolutely the, the version that Euripides writes in uh, Troades. So, yes, yes, I agree with your lecturer. Yeah. Um, so, a question. I'm not sure who this one's from, um, but they say. Uh, They've always liked to know why the ancient Greeks loved and studied the Iliad when none of the characters or none of the male characters come out of it covered in glory. I think that we have to allow that our idea of what being covered in glory and theirs are just very different um, to us. It doesn't look like they do, but we we have to conclude that that's an anachronistic reading. And to them, they, they obviously felt very differently. You know, there's no sense of criticism of any of the behaviours of those heroes in within Homer. And when, you know, Aeschylus turns up and says his plays are slices from the banquet of Homer, and no point is he going. And by the way, it tasted terrible. You know, it, it's just, we feel that way about these men because these men are really individualistic. And now maybe we have a more kind of collegiate idea of what it means to fight in a war, for example. But, it's, it, you know, Hector's Hector's pretty nice, isn't he? He looks, you know, he's really keen to defend his family and his city. Hector's a good one. Patroclus, when they're withdrawn from fighting, he can't, he can't resist going to help 
so he's he's quite nice i mean i do i absolutely agree with you most of them are total shower but there are there are a few nice ones but that's def- very much definitely our, our version of nice my version of nice not a homeric or fifth century greeks version of nice okay let me just see one more question yep um, joanna is asking how do you feel about the back eye as a play and as a group of women I feel about the back eye as a group of women that I'm entirely in favour of rampaging through uh, woods and uprooting, well, not uprooting trees, because that's a bit HS2, uh, but, you yeah, know, planting trees, let's be nice. But, yeah, I mean, I, th- I love this idea that when women get together, it's intrinsically dangerous. And I think that's what's underpinning the idea of the, the back eye. In the same way, or a different reading, I think, of the same phenomenon that we get with, like, the Eleusinian mysteries. Like, what are they doing behind closed doors, those women that we don't know about? And I kind of, I kind of love the back eye for that. I think as a play, it's it's a sort of, you know, incredible battle between the rational and the irrational, isn't it? And it's not my favourite, obviously, because I would every single day of the week pick ones where you know women do horrendous things <laughs> and terrible revenge for something, uh, rather than when a god decides to be a bit petulant. But you know, the poetry is beautiful. The last production I saw was Ben Wishaw at the Almeida. So yes, uh, it's a wonderful play but it's never going to be my favourite Euripides. Well, thank you for that question. And thank you, um, everyone, for your questions. They have been really interesting. They really have. This is a high calibre of questioner you have in Bristol. They are good questions, aren't they? Ah. Yeah, no, fantastic. So thank you so much, everyone, for that. I'm afraid we really will have to stop there. I feel like we could keep you here all evening asking these this kind of thing, but we will have to leave it there for now. So, yes, apologies if we didn't get a chance to answer your question. But just... The hugest thank you, Natalie, for joining us this evening. It has it's been my pleasure. Wonderful, wonderful talking to you. But that is it. That is everything for this evening. So again, thank you. A huge thank you to Natalie and a huge thank you to everyone for joining us. And we hope to see you again at another event soon. Thanks so much. Cheers. Thanks so much, Natalie. Bye. Bye. That's it for this episode of Shelf Life. We hope you enjoyed it. To find out more about upcoming online events like this one, please follow Bristol Libraries on Eventbrite. Next time on Shelf Life, we'll be back with one of the usual made-for-podcast episodes. We'll be talking with author and illustrator Jade Perkin and publisher Greet Powerlane about their book, Mum's Jumper, a picture book about grief, which I found really moving and enlightening. So do come back soon for that. In the meantime, please subscribe, rate and review Shelf Life wherever you listen and get in touch via the Bristol Library's social media accounts and with the hashtag Shelf Life Bristol. Huge thanks to Luke, a volunteer who edits and transcribes the episode, Dan for the theme tune and Will, a library assistant at Avonmouth who polishes off the sound and Ollie, a library assistant at Knoll for the transitional music. They all make Shelf Life possible with their amazing work. And thank you for listening. Bye for now.